0: Acts 4, verses 1 to 12. The priests and the captain of the temple, guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, so the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. The next day the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem, Annas, the high priest, was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others and others of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who is lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone that you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved.
1: So this morning we're we're continuing our journey um, through the uh, book of um, Acts and the story of the early church. Um, And so, uh, if if you're joining us for the first time this morning, we've been walking through the book of Acts that tells the story of the early church, and we're not going through every verse, we're picking out the kind of key themes and key moments as we go through that story. And so this week, we arrive at Acts chapter 4, which is, is in essence, the outbreak of opposition to the early church. Um, And in fact, for the first three centuries of Christianity, the church faced extreme opposition, Um, Firstly, under the the Jewish religious leaders, that that happens in this story of Acts 4 that we hear uh, this morning. And then under the Roman Empire itself, the the early church faced three centuries of extreme opposition. Uh, Christians were arrested, they were tortured, and they were executed simply for their belief that Jesus Christ was Lord. Uh, but yet, what happened in the, in, for the first three centuries of Christianity after the, the death and resurrection of Jesus was that the Christian faith continued to grow rapidly. Uh, so people were, were tortured and executed for their faith, but, but this faith that was illegal continued to grow and grow. Uh, to the point where uh, in the year 313, the Emperor Constantine had somewhat of a conversion experience and decriminalized Christianity and. And started to support the church. Um, just like there can be 45 hours of talk about Palestine and Israel, there's, there's, there's lots of talk about what actually happened within Constantine's heart at that moment, but, but the truth is, uh, whether his conversion was genuine or not, it was a politically savvy move because this Christian faith that had been illegal for, for three centuries had continued to grow to the point where there was enough Christians in the empire that siding with the Christians was a worthwhile thing to do in the midst of civil war. And so the point is that, that Christianity grew and grew and grew in the midst of opposition, this opposition that began in Acts chapter 4. And we see the same thing is true today, though there are incidents where Christianity plummets in places uh, because of Uh, Of persecution opposition and people have to flee but the reality is that in the world today the places where the Christian faith is growing the fastest are often the same places where Christianity is persecuted the most we can think of China as a key example where where Christianity except for the kind of the the authorized church which is controlled by the government Christianity the underground church is growing rapidly it's the fastest I think it still is Um, I didn't check the statistics uh, just this week, but, but it's the fastest growing church in the world, yet the faith is illegal. And in many places, um, you can't talk about Christianity without being imprisoned in China. Uh, and so, th- the truth that we're going to explore today, the surprising truth as we talk about opposition to the church, is that opposition advances God's mission. Opposition advances God's mission. Uh, And so we're going to explore that, we're going to explore the opposition to the early church, we're going to explore how they responded that meant opposition advanced God's mission instead of stifling it. Uh, But first I want to pray just one more time and then we're going to unpack God's word. So Father, I pray this morning that that you would transform our understanding of the place of opposition to the church. Father, I pray that you would um, teach us to respond as the early church did, that you would teach us by your word that that we would respond as they did so that uh, opposition to Christian faith would actually, through us and through your powerful Holy Spirit in us, advance your mission in the world, advance your mission in the church and advance your mission in us. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, So in Acts chapter 4, Peter and John, who who had performed this miraculous healing and who would proclaimed Jesus as the one who that healing had been performed through, as we talked about last week when we are talking about signs and wonders, that that drew a crowd of people who, who put their faith in Jesus, but it also drew another crowd that uh, we need to keep in mind was the same group of people who weeks earlier had arrested and had Jesus executed. And so this same group of people, the temple guard and the, the chief priests arrested Peter and John and they questioned them, and in Acts chapter 4, verse 18, a little bit down from where Carl read for this morning, it tells us the, the, the kind of key offence that they were committing, the key thing that these religious leaders wanted Peter and John and his fellow Christians to stop doing. It says, they called them in again after discussing what to do and commanded them not to speak or to teach at all in the name of Jesus. And so uh, they're, they're arrested, imprisoned for a night, And this first incidence is they're just brought on trial and said, don't go anymore, don't speak ever again in the name of Jesus or preach in His name. Acts chapter 5 tells us that that, uh, opposition to the faith in Jesus escalated. This time, all of the apostles are arrested and this time they're flogged and then told not to preach in Jesus. It said they called all the apostles in and had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and then let them go. And so the opposition to the faith escalated chapter by chapter. Uh, In Acts chapter 6 and 7, we we get told the story of a man named Stephen, and this story is significant for two reasons, because Stephen was a man who performed many signs and wonders, as we touched on last week, but also because Stephen is the first Christian martyr, the first person who's killed for his faith in Jesus. And and so I'm not going to read you the whole story, but I just want to read uh, the last part, of Stephen's life story and his faith in Jesus. And so I'm reading from Acts chapter 7, verse 55. And so it says, but Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, this is when he's on trial, uh, a bit of a mob trial this time. It says, he looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. He said, look, he said, I see see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they, they, that's the crowd, covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him. They dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul was there giving approval to his death. And so uh, Acts chapter two and th- Acts, sorry chapter eight verse two and three says that following this event, uh, on that day, in fact, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him, but Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. And so in a few short chapters, we, we see this escalation of opposition against the Christian church. We see this outbreak of persecution that goes from an arrest and a warning, don't preach in the name of Jesus, to very quickly a man has been stoned to death uh, for, for proclaiming the name of Jesus. And so as we've already discussed though, the The challenge for us is to consider is that that opposition didn't snuff out Christianity. That opposition actually served to advance God's mission. It's paradoxical, it's surprising, and we're going to explore that. But the challenge for us is to grapple and grab hold of that this morning and ask really the question, well, how and why is that the case? How and why does opposition serve to advance God's mission? And the key is in exploring how they responded how did the church respond to this opposition because we've definitely seen cases throughout history where opposition to christianity has smothered it so what's been key to the early church's response and and the response of chinese believers and and other believers around the world where, where we see opposition advance god's mission what's the the key to their response to see that advance god's mission And so I want to suggest that, firstly, opposition advances God's mission in the world when we respond with faithful obedience instead of fear. Opposition advances God's gospel mission, His proclamation of Jesus' mission, His mission for us to be witnesses to the ends of the earth when we respond with faithful obedience instead of fear. And of course there will be fear. We're told that a great persecution broke out and and the believers scattered. And so I'm not saying that we have to try not to be afraid, but the key is what governs our behaviour. Is our behaviour and our decisions, are they governed by faithful obedience to Jesus or are they governed by avoiding persecution through fear? And so Jesus, remember, as we talked about at the start of this series, His central command to those who followed Him was that we were to be witnesses to His name. That through signs and wonders, through deeds, through proclamation, declaration of who Jesus was, that that we were to be his witnesses. And and so it's not an accident, that's that's the very thing they were commanded not to do. The religious rulers in this story told them that there was only one thing they had to do to avoid opposition, not proclaim the name of Jesus. And so it it was very clear cut. You avoid, you don't speak in the name of Jesus and this opposition, this persecution stops. But that was the very thing they were commanded to do. And so in Acts chapter 4, verse 19 um, and 20, Peter responds to this uh, prohibition about speaking the name of Jesus like this. It says, but Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes? To listen to you, that's the religious authorities, the the, the leaders who are saying it is forbidden to speak in the name of Jesus which is right to, to listen to you or to Him? That is God. Which is right in God's eyes to listen to you or to Him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. And, and so Peter and John's initial response to this uh, being forbidden to, to preach about Jesus is, well, we need to obey Jesus. We need to be faithfully obedient to Jesus. And so, as the story went on, as we said, the, the, the persecution ex- escalated and so, after being flogged this time, all of the apostles been flogged, whipped um, and punished for their preaching in Jesus and then again told, do not preach in the name of Jesus, we're told that this is their response. Day after day in the temple court, so publicly, in the very heart of where these religious leaders had their offices and gathered and went about their businesses, day after day, in the temple courts, and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. And so in the midst of this opposition, this command, do not preach in the name of Jesus, they did nothing but preach in the name of Jesus. And we're told even after the the execution of Stephen, which that's a pretty brutal way to be to, to be killed is with rocks thrown at you. Uh, and we're told this persecution broke out and they all scattered to the neighboring territory. It says, though, that those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. And so they weren't commanded to stay in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit had come, and then they were told to, to go to the ends of the earth. And so this scattering actually served to advance God's mission, to take God's word to, to all of the places to which they were scattered. And so they they fled the place where they uh, feared their death. They remained faithfully obedient to the thing they were commanded to do. Preach the word of God. Preach the good news that Jesus Christ is Lord. And it was not just what they preached, it was what they prayed about. And we looked at this last week when we were talking about signs and wonders. Um, And so we're not going to delve too much into the signs and wonders side of this this morning, but but capture what they prayed for. This is when they gathered together in response to the arrest of Peter and John and, and the, for being forbidden to speak in the name of Jesus. I want you to notice what's there and what's missing, what we might pray in this situation. It says, Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand and heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. <clears throat> What's missing from that prayer that would probably be the first thing that we would pray about or for? Stop the, stop the opposition. That'd be the first thing I would go to. I'd go, Lord, let this opposition stop, tear them down, protect us, guard us, you know, uproot the religious leaders so that you know, godly Christian men are put on the, on the high priesthood in the temple. They don't say any of that. What they do say is, help us to be faithful to what you've already told us to do consider their threats. They don't say, and put a stop to them. I'm not saying it's wrong to pray that. But the heart of what they pray is, help us to be faithful to the very thing you've already told us to do. Proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so opposition serves to advance God's mission when we are faithfully obedient to proclaim Jesus in the midst of it. And so what kind of opposition do we face today to the proclaiming of Jesus? You might think of a few things in your life that are kind of a a hindrance to the proclaiming of Jesus. It might be kind of social pressure... To, to not proclaim Jesus, because it's not illegal to, to preach about Jesus in most contexts in Australia today. And, and so, but there is, in at in times, social pressure um, to, to, to keep your faith to yourself. Uh, there is, at times, friends and family that, that, that don't know Jesus and, and they're okay with you having you know, that over there as long as you keep it to yourself, that Christian faith. Um, in some contexts, people are ridiculed and mocked uh, for their faith. In some contexts, Christian faith is um, considered, you know, ancient and barbaric and, and, and in some contexts, Christian faith is considered kind of intellectually naive. And, and, and so, what I'm getting at is in our context, most of the opposition to proclaiming the name of Jesus is kind of more of that social pressure, that, that, that sense of like, oh, people don't like it. And we shouldn't underestimate that as real opposition. We should still seek to, you know, we don't, we don't do ourselves a service when we pretend that we have no opposition to the gospel. What we need to do is, is respond to all kinds of opposition, whether it's a rock in someone's hand or a, or, or a bit of social pressure to keep quiet in the same way the early church did, by never ceasing talking about Jesus publicly and from house to house. But I do think we need to wrestle with the question... Do we perhaps not face more opposition because we don't talk about Jesus? Do we perhaps not face much opposition in our day-to-day lives because we don't proclaim the name of Jesus much at all, only a little bit, only in bite-sized samples, that kind of are uh, warm and fuzzy around the edges? I think we need to wrestle with that question. But but the key response that advances God's mission in the world is that in the midst of opposition, the church responding with faithful obedience to proclaim the name of Jesus in word and deed instead of responding in fear. And the word that we proclaim is that Jesus Christ is Lord, that Jesus Christ uh, was crucified and resurrected for, for our sins. And I say that because I think in our Australian context there's a bit of an environment where we think we're living in faithful obedience to proclaim Jesus, but what often happens is we're just in, insisting on Christian values. Where, where we proclaim, you know, the Christian way of doing things and we say, well, I'm, I'm being persecuted and opposed because of my Christian belief, but, but we never actually proclaim the name of Jesus as Lord. But our, our lobby groups... Um, I'm not going to explicitly name any lobby group, but our lobby groups that name themselves as Christian don't lobby that Jesus is Lord. They lobby for Christian values or for family values, and, they, and, and those values are fantastic and, and, and wonderful in the biblical way, um, mostly. i um, not saying everything they say is biblical. But, but what, what I want us to avoid doing is getting into the trap of feeling opposed because of our beliefs and in response we, we try and enforce Christian values on others. Our response in opposition that advances God's mission in the world isn't good old Christian values. We should, we should live biblical values but we should proclaim the name of Jesus. That's what advances God's mission. So opposition advances God's mission in the world when we're faithfully obedient. And Opposition also advances God's mission in the church when we respond with sacrificial love and unity instead of self-preservation. And so opposition advances God's mission within the Christian community, within the church family, whatever labels we want to put on that, when we choose to respond with sacrificial unity instead of seeking to guard and protect ourselves. And so in Acts chapter 4, after they're released from prison, after they've been given this uh, command to, to not preach in the name of Jesus and before they pray together in Christian community, uh, we, we read this about Peter and John's response. It says, On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Now, I want to highlight two things about the response of Peter and uh, John here. They, it says they went back to their own people. And so Jesus had warned the church, Jesus had warned his followers, uh, don't be surprised if the world hates you, it it hated me before it hated you, and a servant's not greater than his master. And so so Jesus had warned them that there would be hatred towards believers in the world. And so he told them to love one another, that they would have their own people who loved them. And so Peter and John go back to their own people, they go back to the safe harbour of their their church family, their Christian community. And um, most scholars would say their own people represents a smaller subgroup of the church because we're talking at this stage, thousands of people have come to faith. And and so their own people is also a reference to a smaller subgroup of the church, that they had people who were close to them that they could trust and join together and share with one another and, and pour their heart out together. And so opposition advances God's mission in the church when, when we sacrificially love one another, when we have our own people. Um, and so something we want to build in the life of this church is, is, is a greater life groups ministry. We've got a small few life groups happening and, and, and I want to encourage you to, once we get that going in the next few weeks, um, and launch a few more life groups to, to try and get into a life group to have some of your own people. But, but that's just a way of facilitating that. I want to really encourage you to have some people that you know. When if you got arrested and commanded not to preach in the name of Jesus, you'd have some people that you could say, "I went to my own people." And so, if you don't have someone that is your own people, and I'm not just talking about a Sunday gathering—that's part of it—and and be part of a local church, but but I want to encourage you to to invest deeply into relationship to. Sacrificially love and receive love to to prioritise unity in response to opposition, um, and then opposition is something that actually is used by God to build up the church. We've got our own people, and then it says when they rid their own people, they all prayed together. Um, and I was talking to someone at a party yesterday, and um, they were talking about my confession of of being a theology nerd and. And, and saying, don't worry, i leave most of the theology nerd stuff out. And they said, no, you should put more in, you should put more in. So my word for you to remember this morning is homo um, which is the Greek word for together. Um, and so uh, it says they raise their voices, homo in prayer um, in Greek. And, and the reason I highlight that is because it means so much more than just together or at the same time. It It means of one mind, of one passion, of one heart. It's a word that expresses deep unity, not just praying the same words at the same time. And and so the the response of Peter and John was to go to their own people, but the response of their own people was to join together in deep unity in response to opposition. They prayed, yes, but, but this word means so much more than they recited a prayer, it means that their hearts, their minds, their passions, their purposes were united together. And so that takes investment, that takes a response to prioritise love and obedience for your church family over preserving what is yours. Opposition presents us with that choice. Do we retreat to our own and our own houses and homes and space or do we prioritise love and union in the midst of uh, these stories of escalating opposition we find one of those summary statements uh, about the church like we did at the end of Acts chapter 2 uh, that we looked on last week um, a couple of weeks ago sorry but at the end of Acts chapter 4 in verses 32 and 37 uh, we get 32 to 37, we get one of these summary statements about just what it was like in the life of the, the early church around those times. But but we need to remember, because sometimes we pluck these, these passages out of context, we need to remember that this is in the sandwich of escalating persecution and opposition to the church. And so, in an environment of, of the world getting increasingly opposed and violent in their response to Christianity, Acts chapter 4, verse 32 to 37 describes what the church was within uh, amongst one another. And it says, All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions were his own or her own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them. There was no needy person among them, for from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them. They brought the money from the sales and put, the, pardon me, put it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to anyone as they had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. And so the world around the church, around the Christian community is getting increasingly violent towards it but we get this description of what it's like within the family that's like paradise. There was no needy persons amongst them that people would sacrificially sell their possessions and and give it to those who had need. That There were signs and wonders performed by the apostles, but there was also this man named Barnabas who becomes very important in the story to come. But what I want to touch on here is that his name was Son of Encouragement. In, In Jewish culture, they would call someone the Son of Something if that was a characteristic that they um, expressed abundantly. So we might say, and you know, Abraham was having a break from playing the bass this morning, but we might say, Abraham's the son of bass playing, because it's, it's about who he is, he just worships on the bass. Uh, we might say that Dan and Tony are the, the sons of awesome coffee. It doesn't mean that their father or mother was awesome coffee, it means that, that that's something critical to who they are. Um, and so to say Barnabas was the son of encouragement in this moment where, where, where opposition and violence and persecution to the church is on the rise is to say that, that there was this man there that not only gave up his possessions, but he was an encourager. And so the church sacrificially loved and encouraged one another. They expressed unity towards one another. But, but they also had people amongst them that they just were encouraged because opposition is discouraging, they responded oppositely with encouragement. And so when all is comfortable, we have the tendency for internal squabble. Who's ever been a part of a church, and you don't have to out yourself of it being this church, but who's ever been a part of a church where there's been squabbles about things that, you're in the squabble, but you're like, why are we we even fighting about this? Why are we arguing about this? And so when things are comfortable, the tendency to fight and argue and squabble about things that don't really matter kind of rises up. And so opposition actually helps to focus us in on what really matters, if we respond with sacrificial love and obedience. And so I don't want to pretend that the circumstances in Australia towards Christianity are anything like they are in Palestine or anything like they were in the early church or anything like they are in China or northern India or um, um, Turkey or Syria or other places where, where people are literally being arrested, tortured and killed for their Christian faith. I don't want to pretend that our circumstances are the same but it is true to say that the general tone of the culture towards Christianity in Australia has turned in a different direction to what it perhaps was in the last 50 years. And so we have a choice as a church, not just as individuals proclaiming the name of Jesus, we have a choice as a church in how we respond to that. Do we respond by pressing in deeper to loving one another more, to being more united than ever, and to encouraging one another deeply? Or do we kind of retreat to self-preservation and self-protection? Because if we choose the first thing, if we choose to respond with faithful obedience, and if we choose to respond with sacrificial love and unity, then opposition will advance God's mission, not just in the world, but within the church family as well. And uh, finally, um, I also believe that opposition advances God's mission in us as individual followers of Jesus. Opposition advances God's mission in us when we choose rejoicing instead of resentment. I don't know about you, but when someone opposes me or uh, suggests that I'm in the wrong, um, I don't usually celebrate that. <laughs> I usually brood over that, and oh, they'll tell them I'm wrong, and I'm find... surely there's something on Instagram that I can share quietly to you know not tag them in it, but hopefully they'll see it and that'll prove that they're wrong. And My, my, my process is more of a ruminating resentment to opposition. Uh, and that's not just about Christian faith, that's about a whole bunch of things. That's my natural process. But, but the early church responded with rejoicing and we're going to read, read through a, a bunch of verses about that in a moment. But firstly, I, w- I want to... Um, read a quote from uh, Ajith Fernando who's a a scholar we've been looking at throughout this series Um, and he says this about suffering. In an age when many avenues are available to avoid suffering and therefore many Christians have left out suffering from the understanding of the Christian life, Acts presents a church that took on suffering for the cause of Christ and considered it a basic ingredient of discipleship. a basic ingredient of discipleship. And so we live in a culture where we avoid opposition, we avoid suffering, we avoid persecution um, because we have so many opportunities to do so. If we've got a headache, we can take a Panadol. If we've got you know, other issues, we can treat that in different ways. We can, we can medicate our suffering in, in life factors. And so we live in a culture where suffering and opposition and persecution isn't the norm, and so when it comes to our Christian faith, we've removed it from what it means to be a disciple. But, but the church in Acts, the church uh, in the New Testament considered suffering and opposition and persecution to be essential to the shaping of their lives as disciples of Jesus. In Acts chapter 5 verse 41, and I'm, I'm, I'm jumping back and forth between these verses, but I just want to pick out the different bits. Uh, This is after they've been flogged and commanded not to preach in the name of Jesus. And before they went to their people, it says the the apostles left the Sanhedrin, that's the religious council, rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. The name is the name of Jesus. Uh, and, And they got this idea from someone really clever, from Jesus himself. Jesus in Acts chapter 6 verse 22 to 23 said, Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. That's Jesus, another name for Jesus. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy because great is your reward in heaven for that is how the ancestors treated the prophets. And so Jesus warned his disciples uh, that they would be hated and he said, when people hate you, when people exclude you, when people persecute you and call you evil because you believe in me, rejoice in that day celebrate it and so that's what we see the church doing in acts uh, james the brother of jesus reflected on suffering um, and if you're looking at the app i gave you the wrong reference sorry but james chapter 1 verse 2 to 3 it says consider it pure joy my brothers and sisters whenever you face trials of many kinds because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance and let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. And so Carl shared a testimony this morning about um, the, the, the trials with their insurance company, which I don't believe that had anything particularly to do with their Christian faith, but, but, but that negative experience produced some gold in them that would not have possibly been produced had they not been through it. They may not wish to go back and do it again, but there's something produced through that experience. There's a a learning, a patience Carl used, James says, perseverance that's learnt through trial that we can't learn any other way. And, And so Jesus says, rejoice because your reward will be great in heaven. James says rejoice because it's producing a perseverance in you. The Apostle Paul reflected on on suffering and opposition and persecution he said not only so but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance and he goes further he says perseverance character and character hope and so Paul says that that you can't fully develop your character in a sense as a follower of Jesus unless you stand up in the midst of trial, unless your faith is tested by opposition, unless your character as a follower of Jesus is tested uh, by, by some form of opposition or suffering or persecution and not all of that has to be physical. He says, he, he's saying that there, well, we can infer that there'll be lacking some, some perseverance and character and even hope that we cannot have if we don't go through the trial. In Peter, he says uh, this, he says, in all this we greatly rejoice, that's the salvation that comes through Jesus. He says, though now for a little while you may have to suffer in all kinds of trials he says these have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith a greater of greater worth than gold which perishes even though it's refined by fire may result in praise glory and honor when jesus christ is revealed and so peter is saying that the trial has come so that your faith may be refined and proved of greater worth than gold just as gold is refined in fire and increases in its value, but even it passes away, even its value will one day come to an end. He says that, that these trials have actually come, this opposition has actually come to produce a value in your faith that cannot be produced in any other way. And so the early church understood opposition to be essential to their discipleship, to their, their character, to their the growth as a follower of Jesus. And so, in the Western modern church, as, as Agist Fernando suggests, we've removed that from our understanding of discipleship. And, and what I want to encourage us to do this morning is to put it back in. The point is not to go out and try and suffer, the point is not to go out and, and try and find opposition and and, and, you know, pick a fight and then kind of come back and say, well, it's because I believe in Jesus. (laughs) But the point is that when opposition does come, that we don't brood over it in resentment, that we don't ruminate over it and think of all the reasons why we're right because we believe in Jesus and they're wrong because they don't, but to rejoice, to celebrate, that we've been considered worthy, that our discipleship has, has grown to a point where, where, where opposition is actually going to refine us, where actually, opposition is actually going to advance God's mission within us, His mission to shape us into the image of Jesus Christ, His Son. And so just as fire refines gold... Our faith is refined by opposition. And the other metaphor that people sometimes talk about is, you know, if you take a tree and put it in, in a windy situation, it gets stronger. The wind actually helps to strengthen the tree. If you protect a tree from the wind, it, it, it's going to snap off when, when it's an adult tree and wind actually comes. And so, so opposition is like the wind that blows us around, that strengthens our core in Jesus so opposition advances God's mission in us when we choose to respond with rejoicing instead of resentment. And so Stephen gives us uh, perhaps the most powerful uh, picture of, of what that looks like when he's been stoned to death. And he says, Lord, do not hold this against them. He looks at Jesus and celebrates and rejoices and he looks at the people throwing stones at him and says, and by the way, Lord, don't hold this against them. That's a man completely devoid of resentment. And so, the logical thing to assume would be that opposition hampers God's mission, that that when the world rises up and, and opposes uh, the church, when the world rises up and opposes those who have Christian faith, that that holds the church back. And as I said, there's a, there's a shift in the tone of Australian culture uh, away from being supportive of Christianity in general. I don't think it's as big as sometimes the church makes out. Uh, and so we might respond in fear to that. We might start to get fearful as followers of Jesus in that. We might start to respond with self-preservation. Uh, we might start to respond by getting resentful about those who speak ill of the church. Uh, but this morning I want to encourage us as followers of jesus to respond with faithful obedience to respond with uh sacrificial love and unity and to respond with rejoicing and i fundamentally believe that that will advance not hinder god's mission and to help us in that we need to remember and i'm going to finish with this verse that the enemy is not the enemy Uh, the one who opposes us if they have skin on they're not the enemy They might be speaking the words against you. They might be the one throwing rocks at you. But it's what Stephen understood. He said, these people essentially aren't the enemy. They don't know what they're doing. And and the Apostle Paul reminds us that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And so when you're opposed, it helps us to be faithful and remember... It's not them it's the real enemy that that we don't need to resent them we don't need to fear them we don't need to kind of retreat into resentment and and, sorry self-preservation because it's not they're not the enemy they're actually captives of the enemy so father i pray that you would help us to be faithful uh, in and out of season Yeah, Lord, I pray for anyone here this morning that has an area of opposition uh, in their life. Um, And if that's you, I just encourage you to to bring it to mind now. Um, The the place of opposition to uh, your faith. Um, That might be a a person, that might be an institution, that might be just something you feel is a spiritual opposition to your faith. Um, I just encourage you to bring it to mind. So, Father, I pray that you would strengthen us to respond with faithful obedience to proclaim the name of Jesus in that very context. Father, I pray that you would give us uh, a love and unity for one another in church community, that we would each have our people to support uh, each other. But I pray that you would also empower us to love sacrificially, Father, when we think of ourselves, I pray that you would give us an attitude of rejoicing, not resentment, for the very thing that's opposing us. Father, we rejoice for opposition for the goal that it is working in us. In Jesus' name.
0: If you've been blessed and encouraged by this message, we'd love you to become a part of the Ask Baptist family. Log on to ycbc.church to find out more.